Well, we have reached the pinnacle of our study of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. And I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to that great chapter, Jeremiah 31, a passage that we have been looking at for a number of weeks, interspersed, of course, with a, a number of guest uh, speakers along the way, but we've been steadily making our way through it. It's the very foundation of Jeremiah's message and the foundation of the message of Christianity. It is so central to who we are as Christians, so central to our message, that the Lord Himself memorialized it in the Lord's table to make sure that no matter what we do through all the years, we will always remember the new covenant. When we gather around the Lord's table, as we do here once a month at Faith Community Church, we participate in the bread and the cup, and we always remember the Lord through the cup. It is the cup, he said, which is the new covenant in his blood. Sadly, however, in spite of that central fact, most Christians really don't know what it's all about. They really couldn't explain it if they had to. I mean, really, could you explain the new covenant? How would you explain the new covenant if you had to? Well, today we want to help a little bit with that, clarifying that and solidifying that in your minds. And to begin, I actually, I want to just open up to a New Testament passage. I know I asked you to turn to Jeremiah 31. You can hold your finger there and maybe flip over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. This is one of, if not the greatest exposition of the new covenant in the New Testament, a simple explanation given by the writer of this book, Hebrews chapter 8, he says in verse 6, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, uh, faultless there would have been no occasion for a second. We don't have time to fully explain the book of Hebrews or even really this passage, but we'll just pick from this, this very simple contrast between the new covenant and the old covenant. He's simply saying that the new covenant is better because it has better promises. It's better because it has better promises than the old covenant. And a promise basically is a covenant, I'm right? I mean, this is simple enough. The old covenant had promises. The new covenant has promises. The new covenant promises are better than the old covenant promises. That, that is the new covenant in a nutshell. A covenant is a set of promises. It's kind of like a contract. It binds two people, two parties to certain obligations, to certain promises, like a real estate contract. You have a buyer and a seller. The seller signs the contract and agrees to deliver a property under certain conditions and with certain parameters. And the buyer agrees to deliver a certain amount of money in a certain amount of time for the purchase of that contract. And they sign the contract and they're both, both bound to those promises. Well, a covenant is just that. It is a set of promises. So the writer of Hebrews is explaining that the new covenant is basically better because it has better promises. It's a better contract than the old covenant. Now, that's a simple explanation, sure enough, but we'll talk about exactly what those promises are. In fact, we've already talked about them in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, a number of times. God made a covenant with Israel through Moses when He delivered the Ten Commandments while they were in the wilderness. He made a covenant and He gave certain promises. And the promises were given in a series of blessings and curses. You could read about them in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He lists them all right there. A whole host of blessings if they obeyed the commandments and curses if they disobeyed the commandments. And that was the covenant. And those were the promises. And the writer of Hebrews says the new covenant also has promises, but they're much better promises. 
And that's really what we're talking about today, what Jeremiah 31 is talking about. God offered a new covenant with better promises than the old covenant. It's not the old promises simply repackaged. It's not simply you obey and you will be blessed. You disobey and you'll be cursed. The new covenant is better. It's better. And we want to explain that. Now to do that, you have to take a little bit of a deeper dive into the nature of these promises. And this takes you right to the heart of the confusion about these covenants, about religion really in general. There's confusion about religion and religious people. And it all comes down basically to rules, lots and lots and lots of rules, precepts, commandments, laws, whatever you want to call them. Within religion, it seems there are people who really like rules or people who really don't like rules. Some people want to load up on rules. They come up with a rule for almost everything. They want to write it down. They want to codify it. They want everyone to abide by it. They come up with all of these rules. They love rules. And then you have some people who want to get rid of all the rules. Just pretend like everything and everybody is okay. Just stop having rules. Let everyone sort of do whatever they're their heart's desire is, whatever their whim is, just go out there, just accept everybody, no rules. Both of those approaches misunderstand these covenants. They misunderstand the promises of the covenant. They misunderstand the gospel. They really represent the two classic errors when it comes to these things over the centuries. On the one hand, you have legalists, people who think that they want all kinds of rules to define and govern every aspect of life for everyone around them. And then on the other hand, you have antinomians, people who want to get rid of all the rules. They want to live with as few rules as possible. And neither of them, as I said, understand the promises of these covenants. Now for Israel, throughout their history, they fell on one side or the other of those two groups. At times, They didn't want any rules. At times, they wanted to get rid of all the precepts and all the laws. At times, they wanted to load up on the rules. They wanted to increase them and and, uh, magnify them and compound them. The Old Covenant was the basis, but they added to it and added to it and added to it. This is basically all, as I said, built on a misunderstanding of why the Old Covenant had been given or even why the new covenant is given eventually. When you could begin with the old covenant, the old covenant, or as we sometimes refer to it, the law, the scripture, the, 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 the commandments that were given to, as a form of law to Moses, it basically had two functions. The first function was to reveal God, His will, His character, in, in, in various situations, it was designed to help people understand His holiness. In fact, when God commanded Moses to explain the law to Israel, He was to tell them, Leviticus 19 says, that they are to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So the law was intended to reveal God's holiness, to reveal God's character, to reveal what He's like and what His will is and what He wants and is spelled out in different situations. We might call it case law. They couldn't define every conceivable situation, but they basically give you a whole bunch of examples of what you do if someone moves the boundary lines on your property or if someone uh, damages your livestock or what do you do if you want to purchase livestock or how do you handle things if you have a, a disease or all those kinds of things. You were legislated in certain categories, and those became examples, those became precedent for the judges of Israel to look to. It's not an exhaustive list. As a matter of fact, someone has counted it up and said that there are 613 laws in the Old Testament, hardly enough for every situation, but they they were supposed to provide a kind of precedent to decide other issues. Jesus, of course, came... And he summarized 
Not just all the law, but all the prophets. He summarized not only the case law, but all the application of it through all the prophets, through all the centuries. And he said you can basically summarize it in two laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's all of it. But no matter how you enumerate it, no matter how many you count up, no matter how you summarize it or whatever, it all had one purpose. It had one purpose, which was to reveal the character of God. I'm sorry, it had two purposes. One of them was to reveal the character of God, to reveal what He's like, to reveal what His will is. But there was a second purpose of the law, and that was to point to Christ. That is to say, it was full of ceremonies and signs and symbols that were just simply there to picture something else. Again, the writer of Hebrews explains this. He says in Hebrews 8, 4, that there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Or over in chapter 10, he says in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the purpose of the law was not only to show you God's character, to show you God's will in those matters, the purpose of the law was to give you symbols or signs to point to things that were to come, the true things, the things which were going to be the reality that fulfilled the sign, if you will. Or we might even say to point to the things which would be effectual. You had the law, you had to offer sacrifices over and over and over again. And by doing that, it would occur to you after a period of time, this isn't working. I mean, I'm just offering sacrifices again and again and again, and it's not working. That's not taking away my sin. Well, that's because it wasn't intended to. These are signs that were intended to point to the actual substance, the reality, the thing that would be effectual in taking away your sins. And so the law had all kinds of symbolic acts and symbolic instruments, and you had to have certain kinds of bowls and certain kinds of spoons and certain certain kinds of tongs, and they had to be holy and dedicated to the Lord through certain kinds of acts and ceremonies. And by requiring all of that stuff to be done over and over again, it was pointing to the temporal or the symbolic or the passing nature of all of that stuff. Now, if those were the purposes of the law, we should also point to its result. Its result was condemnation. It resulted in conviction. It resulted in guilt. It resulted in condemnation. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul describes again the old covenant in a grand passage, probably the the second greatest exposition of the new covenant in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says down in verse 9, he said, if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness far exceeds it in glory. But there he, he's referring to the Old Covenant, and he refers to it as a ministry of condemnation. That is, its, that is its effect. That is its ministry. That is what it brings about. It brings about condemnation. Or even back in verse 7, he calls it a ministry of death. That is its effect. He explains it a little deeper in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He's talking about Adam. Adam came into the world, Adam sinned, and because of that, death spread to everyone. He said, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. And yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those, over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So he's basically saying two things here. He's saying, first of all, death existed before the law. Because sin existed before the law. In other words, we were dying. Before the law ever came, we were dying. It was a reality in human existence and human life. But secondly, he says, sin was not being counted. Or we might say it wasn't being accounted for. It wasn't being recognized. People were dying, but they had no idea why they were dying. They were miserable, but they had no idea why they were miserable. They were fighting all the time, but they had no idea why they were fighting all the time. There was all kinds of death and destruction and decay in the world, but people didn't know why. So sin and death existed before the law, but it wasn't accounted for until the law came. Paul says a similar thing in Romans chapter 7. What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known about sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. For I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin came alive and I died. What is he saying here? He's not saying that he wasn't sinful before the law came. What he's saying is, I once existed without awareness of my sin. I once existed without knowing how covetous I was. I once existed without knowing how destructive I was, how how full of deadness I was. I once existed without knowing any of that stuff. But when sin came in, it revealed all kinds of covetousness within me. It produced things or at least made me aware of things I wasn't aware of before. And whereas I used to think I was alive, now I realize I'm dead. In fact, in verse 13 of Romans 7, he clarifies, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It wasn't actually the law which was doing this. That's not it, he says. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So this is the old covenant. This is the law. This is what it does. It's not so much that it produces death. Death was already there from Adam to Moses. It's not so much that it produces sin. Sin was already there from Adam to Moses. But what the law does is it reveals sin. It exposes sin. It sort of rips all of the wallpaper off of the walls of the, of the, the life that you have built to reveal that what you thought was your nice little dwelling is actually a prison cell. That you're actually locked up even though you had papered over the bars. The law reveals your condition. Not only that, but the law increases your guilt. Because now having heard what is wrong, your flesh not only rebels against it, but you see it, you suppress it, you deny it, and you rebel against the law, and you're Sin and your guilt increases, and with it comes an increasing sense of guilt, an increasing sense of despair, an increasing sense of frustration, an increasing sense of shame. That's not just you. You're not the only one who has gone through that. This is what God and His law is all about, always has been. It increases, it magnifies your guilt. It makes your sin more visible to you. It's designed to produce that awareness. So the whole purpose of the Old Covenant is pretty clear. It had promises, promises of blessing, but promises of curses. And those promises were intended to help Israel see 
their sin, to see their guilt, and then to give them signs and symbols that pointed to the hopeful work of a Savior. He gave all these promises of blessings and for obedience and curses for disobedience, but because of all of Israel's sin, because of all of their guilt, because of all of their hardness of heart, they would continually disobey, and consequently they would bring on themselves the curses of the covenant, the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of death. The issue all along, though, is this. That's, that kind of spells out, if you will, the, the technical aspects, the academic aspects of the law. But the real-life reality is that Israel wasn't getting the message. That's what the law is intended to do, but it wasn't having its effect on Israel. In fact, the more Israel sinned, the more they denied the law. The more that they rebelled, the less they wanted to listen to the law, the less they wanted to hear the law. In fact, Paul describes it there a little bit further in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, you can begin in verse 5 where he says, he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Here he's ta- talking about the, the, the distinction here between the way people interact with the covenant, and he's talking about the law, and he calls it the letter versus the Spirit. This is really describing a kind of superficial reading of the covenant, the approach that simply hears the commands, and all it hears is a list of do's and don'ts. This is the way Israel read the Scripture. That's the way they read the law. They read it in a letter fashion. And Paul says reading it in that way leads to death. Listening to it in that way ultimately kills. This old covenant became a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation for Israel. And then he gives a little picture to explain what was happening. Because when Moses went up to receive the covenant, he came down the mountain and what he found was that before God could even give them the covenant, they had already turned aside to all kinds of sinful rebellion. They had made for themselves a golden calf. They had tried to proclaim that as their God. They had tried to accredit that golden calf as the one that had brought them up out of land of Egypt. He you may remember, smashed those tablets as he came down the mountain, interceded for Israel because God was going to destroy them. And then, because of God's graciousness, he went back up the mountain, received a second set of stone tablets. And when he came down the mountain this second time, we're told that his face was shining because he had seen God. He had asked to see God. God had revealed himself to Moses, and Moses came down the mountain. He didn't realize that there was sort of a glow now to his face because he had looked at God, or at least looked at what what Exodus describes as the rear parts, the, the back of God. Couldn't see his face. He had to look at his back. And so he came down the mountain with this glowing on his face, and Israel couldn't even take it. They Not only could they not look at the revelation of God, they didn't even want to look at the reflection of it. In Moses' face. So they asked Moses to put a veil over his face so that they didn't have to look at that. They couldn't handle it. They didn't want it. They didn't want God. They didn't want his law. They didn't want to see him. They didn't want to interact with him. And all of this becomes a picture as Paul begins to describe what was taking place with Israel. How they would reject, ultimately, this ministry and this dilemma formed in their hearts and minds. Paul says now, whenever they read the Old Covenant, it was like they still had the veil on their eyes. 
that was there to reveal God. It was there to show His holiness. It was there to demonstrate His character. And not only that, it was there to give Him all these signs and symbols of hope in the, in the Christ. But it's like they put a veil over their own face. Whenever they read the law, they didn't understand it. They would read the Scripture, they wouldn't understand it. They would read God's Word and it wouldn't make any sense to them. And it's because they had a veil over their face. They didn't want to really hear what it had to say. They didn't like what it had to say. It exposed them. It unmasked them. It revealed their wayward and sinful ways. In fact, Paul says, even in his own day, when Israel reads Moses, when they read the Old Covenant, there's still a veil over their eyes. They still don't get it. They don't understand its purpose. They don't understand what it's trying to do. They're not allowing it to reveal in them their sin, to show them their sin. They're not allowing it to do its work of condemnation or allowing it to do its work of hope. They're not allowing it to do any of that because there's a veil over their their face. Now, if you understand all of that, then you'll understand Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following. And you can turn there now, finally, Jeremiah 31, 31. We've been tracing our way the last couple weeks through these two chapters, Jeremiah 30 and 31, and taking a look at these nine poems that Jeremiah has stitched together Every one of them identified by a couple of markers in the Hebrew language. You can't see it in the English, but in the Hebrew language, these nine poems or these nine poems and prose sections, they alternate between masculine and feminine address, making them very distinct. But they're also very distinct because they all begin with the same words, thus says the Lord, and each of them has a kind of a contrast between judgment and hope. And as you move through the nine poems, they kind of build, if you will, in the sense of hope. They increase. They're more hopeful as you move along. And we don't have time to review them all. We can just list them as we've gone through them. We saw in chapter 30, uh, verses 1 through 4, a poem that we called from ruin to restoration. In verse 5 through 11, from panic to peace. In verses 12 through 17, from rage to reconciliation. In chapter 31, verses 2 to 6, from distant to dearest. From 31, 7 through 14, from brokenness to blessing. 15 through 22, from hopeless to hopeful. And then last time we introduced the eighth one, from the old covenant to the new covenant. And we just dealt with the introduction there, those few verses from 23 to 30, where Jeremiah contrasts the previous attitude of Israel where they would not take responsibility for their sin, where they would not accept the message of the Old Covenant, where they didn't want to take the blame for their rebellion. But Jeremiah tells us in verse 29, in those days, they'll no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, they'll reach a point where they're not trying to blame shift. They'll reach a point where they're not trying to say, this is someone else's fault. This is our parents' fault. They, they're the ones who sinned and we're suffering the consequences. They will finally accept responsibility for their sin. This is their repentance. There's a time coming, Jeremiah says, when things are going to change and people are going to accept personal guilt, personal responsibility. They should have already been doing that. The law was designed that they would do that. The old covenant was supposed to lead them to that conclusion. But they just read it in letter fashion, not according to its spirit. They read it with a veil over their hearts. And when people tried to talk to the Jews about their sin and their guilt, they, there was just stubbornness, refusal to listen, resistance, obstinance, in some cases, anger, murder, hatred. They should have seen the law. They should have seen all of the requirements. They should have understood their failure to live up to what God commanded 
They should have understood their lack of love for God and their lack of love for others. It should have been obvious to them. They should have been like that tax collector in Luke 18 who entered into the synagogue and wouldn't even lift up his eyes, beating his chest. I love, I've been listening to Darby's song, Be Merciful to Me, a Sinner. It's really just a tremendous uh, uh, lyrical uh, way of condensing that message down. Where this, where this tax collector understood his condition. That should have been the conclusion of Israel. But instead they resisted. They refused. They denied. And they hardened their hearts. So they were not yet taking personal responsibility for their sin. And so when they refused to learn... From the law, God understood that He had to teach them through punishment, through chastening, through judgment. And this is what much of Jeremiah is all about. It's an announcement in light of their hard-heartedness, in light of their refusal. It was an announcement to hear the message of the old covenant that the curses we're finally going to arrive in full force. In fact, Jeremiah is even told a couple of times in chapters 14, 15, 16, he's told a couple of times, don't even pray for him. Don't even pray for him. This is necessary. Moses interceded. He prayed for Israel. God overlooked their sin, but he tells Jeremiah, don't pray for him. Now, in Jeremiah 31, all of that has taken place. The judgments have been poured out. Israel's been uh, decimated. Jerusalem's been leveled. It's been destroyed. And so Jeremiah turns his focus beyond the judgments to a brighter future when Israel will finally learn. They will finally learn. And this is what... He says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. Now, this is pretty clear. With all the background I've given to you, this is pretty clear. And you could identify basically six elements of the new covenant that Jeremiah is announcing here in light of the old covenant. And we we just can run through them pretty quickly with just a few comments. But just to give them to you up front, six elements of this new covenant. It is gracious... It is with Israel, it is unbreakable, it is internal, it is universal, and it's based on forgiveness. That's the six elements. Now let's just look at them one by one. First of all, it's very clear from this passage that this new covenant is gracious. Simply saying that it is initiated by God. The word grace in Greek basically has that idea. It has the idea of something which is, which is uh, unprompted or it is undeserved or it's not reciprocal. It's not paying you back for something that you've already done. It's just freely given. That's basically what the word means. Well, here, that would be an apt description of this covenant. God simply says in verse 31... The days are coming, they're not here right now, but they're coming, when I will make a new covenant. 
This is not something God is forced to do. It's not something He's coerced or obligated to do. He has every right to judge. He has every right to condemn. He has every right to declare unworthy and unfit. He has every right to completely obliterate them, to disown them, to ostracize them and cast them out. He has every right to do that. He could simply focus on their hardness of heart, their refusal to listen to Him. He could focus on all of His patience and generosity. He could highlight how He had given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But instead of doing any of that, what He does is He just initiates a new covenant. He initiates a new way a new solution for their sin. And so this act of establishing a new covenant is gracious on God's part. Secondly, it is with Israel. He says it very simply in verse 31, it's a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of the covenant right here. So many people really struggle with this The covenant is actually with Israel. It is not with Gentiles. Let me explain that for just a moment. Paul couldn't be more clear on this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, contrasting Jews and Gentiles. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is the circumcision, which is made in flesh by human hands. So he's, he's contrasting Jews and Gentiles, circumcision and uncircumcision. Remember, he says in verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise with no hope and without God in the world. So he's basically saying you as a Gentile did not have a covenant with God. God did not make a covenant with you and you didn't have one. You were a stranger to the covenants of promise. Romans chapter 9, speaking of his fellow Jews, he says, verse 4, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So it's very plain. The covenant was made with Israel. It was not made with Gentiles, at least in its original declaration. And what God is saying here to Jeremiah, He's not saying to Gentiles. He's very clear, this is a covenant that I'm making with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, when you get into Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul goes on to tell us that there was a mystery that was at work. This was something that was previously hidden in the Old Testament, but became evident or revealed through the preaching of the apostles And he says in Ephesians 3, 6, this this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So previously you had no covenant, but now because of Christ Jesus, you are included in the covenant that was originally given to Israel. When Christ came, the full gospel was revealed. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.14 that Jesus Christ is Himself our peace who has made both of us into one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. In other words, there aren't two anymore. There's only one. One new man. So now you and I are included. We have been, as he says in Romans chapter 11, we're grafted in like a wild olive branch. We've been grafted into the olive tree, which is God's plan of covenants. 
Now, it's important that you understand this. This is often misunderstood. The mystery, that mystery that was revealed through the preaching of the apostles, it does not undo what God's original promise to Israel was all about. It expands on that, but it doesn't undo the original promise. That original covenant made with Israel still stands. It still awaits God's gracious work to fulfill with them. It still is going to be fulfilled according to His magnanimous loving kindness. Which brings us to the third element of this covenant. It is unbreakable. It is unbreakable. Jeremiah says, verse 32, This covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was a husband, declares the Lord. The new covenant is not like that covenant, Jeremiah says. They could break that covenant. They could spurn me. They could deny. They could break that covenant, but this new one they won't, they won't do it. They broke the old one, even though I was like a, a husband to them, and he pictures himself taking Israel by the hand like a groom, walking his bride down the aisle. He pictures himself gently and graciously reaching out to them in their captivity in Egypt and lovingly bringing them out through the, through the wilderness to the promised land. And in spite of this incredibly gracious love, from God, rescuing them from their bondage, still they rebelled and still they broke the covenant. The issue, though, was not an insufficient love from God. He loved them supremely. The issue was the nature of this covenant. It was a covenant that they could break. But this one, he says, will not be like that one. It will be unbreakable. They may fail. They may not be perfect. But this covenant will not be like the previous one, which was subject to breaking. Because it's going to be based 100% on the gracious kindness of God and nothing else. There will be no conditions to fulfill. There will be no, no bargain, no promises of curses if they disobey there will be no laws that are required to keep there's no reintroduction of all that stuff from the old covenant in fact if you try to reintroduce all of that stuff from the old covenant into the new covenant you're just laying the foundation of what was already supposed to be passing away so the new covenant has none of that stuff and so therefore it is impossible to break it impossible to break it It's unbreakable. Fourth, it is internal. It's internal. It's not that old covenant that had laws and moral standards that were kind of imposed on people from the outside. The new covenant, he says, is different. It's not lawless, the new covenant. The new covenant doesn't deny laws. It doesn't deny the need for a moral code is different not in the fact that it has no moral code. It's different in the fact that that code is now internal. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. You know, it's interesting. Back in Jeremiah 15, he talks about their hearts already being written on, but he says it was sin that had been written on their hearts. He says it was like, like sin was like a, a, a diamond-tipped chisel written into steel. Chiseled on their heart was their sin. That was what was there. They were so bent on it. But here he says, I'm going to write their, the law. I'm going to write it on their hearts. This was a problem with the Old Covenant. So many Jews just read the letter of the law. It was nothing to them 
but external rules, external do's and don'ts. But a life can't be boiled down to just do's and don'ts. It can't fully be governed by 613 laws because every person's situation is unique. There are so many factors that confront our lives every day. There are so many different situations in which we find ourselves. We are constantly in need of God's wisdom and God's character to be formed within us. So we don't need just some limited external list of laws. What God is saying is that in the new covenant, he's actually going to write the law on our hearts so that the impulse to do what pleases God is not going to come primarily from some external set of rules. It's not going to come from some list that we have to be reminded of over and over again. It's going to come from inner compulsion, inner desire. This will be very unique for Israel because Israel always had priests and prophets who were always bringing them line upon line, precept upon precept, always reminding them of all these things, but they resisted and they resisted and they resisted. But in the new covenant, there will be a sensitivity A sensitivity to your conscience, a sensitivity to others, a sensitivity to God that makes you want to honor Him regardless of whether someone's telling you to do this or do that. God's going to put it from within you. Under the old covenant, under the law, under the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation, it was just something that was imposed on you. When someone wasn't looking... When you had the privacy of your own closet or your own dark corner, when you had whatever opportunity you had, then the real you would come out, the real inner side of you, the heart that had been etched with sin would come out. But in this new covenant, the real you is going to be a you that understands the Lord's glory. And there's going to be an inner desire to do what pleases Him. Fifth, it's universal. It is universal. Jeremiah 31, 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, without getting into too much detail... Here, he speaks about each one teaching his neighbor and his brother. You won't have to do that anymore. Why? Because you will all know me. From the least to the greatest, you'll all know me. The new covenant is not going to be some partial work for just a remnant or just a small group. It is going to be complete, universal within Israel. It is essentially going to eliminate the work of evangelism within Israel. You will not have to say to people, know the Lord. You won't have to go around pleading with them to believe and to follow the Lord. Everyone within Israel is going to know Him. That, of course, isn't true at the moment, Paul makes this plain in Romans chapter 11 that because of Israel's hardness of heart, only a remnant, only a small remnant is currently believing. And because of that, Israel as a nation has been broken off from God's new covenant work that's taking place within the church. But he's very clear that God is able to graft them back in. And so, while only a small remnant believe right now, Paul says, one day all Israel will be saved. It will be universal. You will not have to say, know the Lord. They will all know Him. And then finally, the sixth element, it is based on forgiveness. It is based 
on forgiveness. This is also different from the Old Covenant. I will, he says in verse 34, I'll forgive their iniquity, I'll remember their sins no more. This isn't like the Old Covenant where there was this constant sacrifices and ceremonies and rituals when you did it all the time over and over again, the constant reminder of your guilt, the constant reminder that you were still in need of something. For Israel as a nation, there had always been this looming judgment hanging over them because of these promised curses. But now God says, because they genuinely repent, because He writes His law in their hearts, it'll come with forgiveness. And their relationship with God's going to be transformed. They'll go from being a people who are separated from God to a people who are reconciled to God. They'll go from being a people who are under the ministry of condemnation to being a people who are under the ministry of the Spirit, which gives life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's freedom. There's freedom from your sin, freedom from your guilt and shame, freedom from your misery, freedom from your self-destruction, freedom from all that stuff. There's forgiveness. Of course, it's not true just for Jews. It's true for anyone who participates in this new covenant. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you confess yourself, a condemned sinner because of your deeds, because of your hardness of heart, because of your, your rebellion against Him. If you do that, He forgives your sin. He removes your death. He welcomes you to come near to Himself. And He makes you the inheritor of all of His precious promises. That's really what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. Even as believers, as Gentile believers who've been grafted into this magnificent plan, we celebrate all of these rich benefits that become ours through the forgiveness of our sins. Really quickly, we can note after seeing this new covenant, one more poem in this sequence by Jeremiah, and it comes to us in verses 35 through 40, from destroyed to rebuilt. From destroyed to rebuilt. And this powerful, beautiful language just needs to be listened to, describing how inviolable, unbreakable, and eternal are these promises that God is giving to Israel here. He says in verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured or the foundations of the earth below be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. From the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, the measuring line shall go out further, straight to the hill Garib. And then shall turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Magnificent promises. The message is plain you could sooner expect God to suspend the orbit of the earth and the moon around the sun than you could expect Him to give up on Israel. It's not just a promise for a few individual Jews. 
It's not just a promise for a small remnant. He declares that Israel will never cease to be a nation before him. You remember we talked about this. He contrasts this with other nations. He contrasts this with Babylon. He contrasts this with Edom. He contrasts this with Moab. And he says, I'm going to give up on those nations. They're going to go away. But you, Israel, I won't give up on. You as a nation will continue before me. Despite their behavior, despite their hard-heartedness, there will be no turning from his plan. He says it in verse 37. You can measure the foundations of the earth. Or if you could measure the, the heavens and the foundations of the earth, then I'll cast off Israel. In other words, if you could, if you could lay out a measuring tape for the in, infinite space that surrounds us and somehow measure it, then, then maybe I would give up on Israel. Of course, that can't be done. Consequently, his plan will never be suspended. In fact, he promises that Jerusalem will one day be rebuilt and he gives a bunch of measurements from gate to gate to gate, basically beginning with the northernmost gate and working counterclockwise around Israel. He names all of these different gates. Interestingly, he follows the same sort of counterclockwise pattern that you find in the book of Nehemiah, but the key difference is is that the, the, the Jerusalem that Nehemiah describes is much smaller than the Jerusalem that Jeremiah is describing. Much, much larger footprint. He even talks about a measuring line. Nehemiah, you may remember, didn't really build walls so much as he repaired walls. But a measuring line is an instrument that was used in Israel not for repairing things, but for building things, for brand new construction. A measuring line goes out claiming new territory, basically. And what he's saying here is that Jerusalem is going to be expanded in such a way that it encompasses areas that have never been a part of Jerusalem, such as the Valley of Hinnom, or as we sometimes call it Gehenna, the place of the dead bodies, where originally they would lay their children on the burning arms of an altar to Molech and watch their flesh sizzle and burn and die. That place eventually became the place where they would dump all the bodies of those who were defiled and unwanted. And then by the time you get into the New Testament, it was the place where they dumped their trash But he says that even then, Israel will, or that section of Israel, will be incorporated into Jerusalem. The dead bodies and the ashes will be sacred to the Lord. It's not only a prophecy about what's going to happen in the future, it's a beautiful picture of what the Lord does in the new covenant. All of your defiled, filthy deeds and acts, all the deadness of your rebellion, all that stuff in your life that is good for nothing but to be thrown out Onto the garbage heap. All that stuff of which you are ashamed. The Lord redeems it. The Lord redeems it. He makes it sacred to the Lord. This is the message of the new covenant. There's an old covenant. It had promises of curses if you disobeyed. There was judgment, there was condemnation, there was death. A bunch of list of rules that you can't keep. But it was there just to show you who you are. The filthy, the condemned, the rebellious. It was there just to show you those things. But then to give you hope 
that God was going to provide an ultimate sacrifice that can cleanse all of that stuff, can take all that filth and junk and stuff, and he can make it holy, sacred to the Lord. That's a better promise. That's a better promise. So why would you continue living on in that old covenant? Why would you continue living under those curses? You can never overcome them. You can never overcome your sin. That's no way to live. There's a better covenant. And it comes through Jesus Christ. If you confess your sins and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be forgiven. And the promise of the covenant is yours. Forgiveness of sins, newness of life. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for this covenant. We're so, we're so moved again by its graciousness, its unbreakable nature, by the fact that it requires nothing of us. You did the work. All you ask is that we see ourselves for the broken sinners that we are and that we ask you for your mercy. Lord, help us. We need it. We need you to save. We need you to renew. We need you to write your law on our hearts. We need you to forgive our sins. Would you do that, Lord? For many here who already know you, would you remind us of these deep and precious truths for those who are here today who do not know you, who are still living under those curses. Would you save them? Forgive them? Make them your own? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.